powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks of BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Dr. Garrett Yant. He was a great guest, and I'm so glad we could make that interview happen. If you have not heard our in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 185, and we have a fantastic episode lined up for you today. We have on the show the legendary Homer Hickam. Homer is a former NASA engineer and best-selling author with his biographical memoir, Rocket Boys, which was then turned into the 1999 film, October Sky. Homer is also a Vietnam veteran, an accomplished scuba diver, and so much more. Lots to cover, and I am so glad we were able to get him on the show, so let's get him on out here. Duval Nation, please join me in welcoming to the show, calling in today from his home in Huntsville, Alabama, Homer Hickam. Homer, good afternoon. Welcome to the Derek Duval Show. I want to say it's a great honor to have you here with me. How is the weather out by you today? Well, hey, uh, Derek, and good afternoon to you as well. Actually, um, I'm here in North Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama, and we're having a relatively moderate summer, although the humidity is high. I'm tending to stay in with the air conditioning and just doing the treadmill rather than running around the neighborhood. Nice, nice. So with the pandemic now coming to an end, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Well, yeah, uh, that's that's a, a great question. Mostly, um, uh, I'm, let's see, I was like 78, I guess, when the pandemic hit. I'm 80 now. My wife was in her late 60s. So naturally, the worry was because of our age that we were really vulnerable to, uh, to this virus. So we did stay in a lot. But typically, as a writer, uh, I tend to stay in a lot anyway. So I would guess that the way our life changed was that my wife would go to bed and I would just sit up and watch all these old TV shows. I watched every episode of The Office. (laughs) And then I watched every episode of Seinfeld. And then I watched every episode of Parks and Recreation. And finally, I went upstairs and just started writing another memoir. So it worked out okay. And uh, we're both healthy uh, as we uh, see the end of this thing. Nice. So every journey has a beginning. Uh, where were you born? What was it like growing up in, pers- in post-World War II West Virginia? 
Yeah, that's uh, another good question. I was born in 1943, so I'm not a boomer. So you're not allowed to say, okay, boomer, to anything I say. I'm a war baby, actually. So I grew up um, in this little uh, coal mining town, Colwood, West Virginia. And Colwood was way down deep into the coal fields. And it was a pure company town. The coal company owned everything. It owned every house, every fence, every road, every tree, every door. It even owned the churches, so the preachers were company men. So we heard the company line during the sermons uh, every Sunday. Uh, it was interesting, though, if the preacher didn't pan out, they would just hire a new preacher, and sometimes he'd be a different religion. So uh, we'd be Methodist and be rocking along there for a while, and then all of a sudden we'd be Southern Baptist, which was kind of an unusual transition. <laughs> um, but uh, every adult male that lived in Colwood had to work for the coal mine. And every adult female that lived in Colwood had to either be married to a coal miner or a teacher. They allowed teachers to come in. They generally gave them free housing and a little stipend, uh, extra stipend to their salary. But they knew that wouldn't last very long because invariably the teachers they brought in would marry a coal miner and, and they'd be in the same house. So, um, so yeah, it was a very interesting uh, uh, place to grow up. But my dad... When I was born in 43, he was just a foreman. He'd come up as a common laborer. By uh, the time I was in high school, he had become the superintendent of the coal mine, which is sort of like being the mayor of the town. So there's a lot of pressure on him, needless mm -hmm. to say. You know, it's funny, coming from a mining community in South Wales, you know, mining in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s was the predominant industry of the, of the country. Uh, the mine shut down now in the late 80s, but I remember growing up, you know, it was you either went to school or you were a minor. And there was one, there was no ethereans, there was no gray area. You went to school, you were a minor. And I remember hearing stories, you know, um, my my grandfather, you know, he did 20 years in the mines. His grandfather did 20 years in the mines and so forth. So hearing, uh, knowing your story and hearing, your, you know, your your background and what have you, it, it's definitely, I understand that that community as well. Well, yeah, I didn't realize um, how unique a place that I was growing up in until I went off to college. I mean, before then, I thought everybody lived like we did. Everybody lived in a company town. All of my dad's brothers were coal miners. Um, his father had been a coal, a coal miner. His grandfather had been a coal miner. My mom's, all of her brothers, she had six of them, were all coal miners. Same thing for her father and her grandfather. So it was um, very, very much kind of uh, anticipated that uh, any any boys that grew up in Colwood would probably become a coal miner or somehow associated with the coal mine. But my mother had um, had a different idea. She really wanted her boys to do something else. She knew that the coal mine was killing her husband slowly with black lung, and she saw all the evidence around there that the mine was um, probably going to play out during our lifetime. So she really, really pushed for uh, my brother and I to go to college. And my brother was a football star. He, he was definitely going to get a football scholarship, but there was a big question whether I was smart enough ever to go to college. And uh, fortunately, when the time came to write about there, about that, uh, there hung the tale about yeah. whether that little boy was going to be smart enough to go to college. What led you to become interested in building amateur rockets? Well, before uh, 1957, I, I, I would not have ever thought about building a rocket. Uh, I, I was a big reader of science fiction, 
Uh, most of us uh, folks in Colwood were big readers. We, it was just what you did, and almost every house had a, had a, at least a small library. And of course, we had the school library. And we tended we children in the fifties tended to read a lot of science fiction because that was the golden age of science fiction, uh, with uh, Heinlein and uh, Clark and Asimov and all of these great writers at that time. So in 1957, uh, the space age began when the Russians launched the world's first uh, Earth satellite. That really scared the United States. We were in a big Cold War with them at the time. And if you kept up with the news, it, it looked like that somehow along the way, we were going to get in a nuclear war with the Russians. And then when they launched Sputnik in October of 57, fear was that they've now got a rocket that could launch an atomic bomb on us. And so the reaction in the United States mostly was, um, was fear. However, we kids who had read all this science fiction, um, we realized that, uh, that, that maybe there was just something really fun and an adventure beginning. And we read a lot about uh, this uh, fellow down here in Huntsville named uh, Werner von Braun, who, um, who said he could put in a satellite into orbit, an American satellite. And we had we were fairly familiar with him. He'd been on the uh, Walt Disney show on TV and, and before Sputnik. But it was, it was clear that if you want to go work for Werner von Braun, you better know how to build a rocket. So that's what I told my mom, that uh, I was going to build a rocket. And um, she chuckled a little bit, but then she looked at me and said, well, don't blow yourself up. And uh, so I, I figured that uh, she was giving me permission to go out there and build a rocket. So that's what really started it, um, the uh, the whole story of the Rocket Boys of Colwood. Are you still in contact with any of the Big Creek Missile Agency? I am. As a matter of fact, there is a musical called Rocket Boys, the musical that is the um, – the state uh, musical for West Virginia and Theater West Virginia puts it on every year. So I just came back uh, this past weekend. Roy Lee was there, one of the Rocket Boys. And quite often I see Odell, another one of the Rocket Boys, and Billy's still around. Quentin, um, the prototypical nerd of all time, passed away a few years back. And Sherman, who had polio, um, also passed away at a, at a relatively young age. But otherwise, yeah, I keep up with those guys. That's amazing. What inspired you to volunteer for the U.S. Army? Well, um, the college that I went to was a military college, uh, Virginia Tech, and um, had a cadet corps. And at that time, it was all military. Now it's a big university. They still have a cadet corps, a very good one. But at that time, uh, if you went to Virginia Tech, you were required to be in the cadet corps. So I went, and I I didn't mind the cadet corps. I wasn't the best cadet at first, but later on I came, I got to be pretty, I got more demerits than any freshman uh, that first year. And the commandant hauled me into the office and said, uh, Mr. Hickam, uh, why are you getting so many demerits? And I gave that some thought and I said, well, sir, I think that's the way I learn. And he <laughs> said, you need to come up with a better way to learn. Get out of my office and I don't want to see any more demerits out of you. So I shaped up, actually went through Air Force ROTC but when I got out of, ended my college career, I graduated. The Air Force at that time didn't, I, I had really bad eyes, so they didn't really want anybody like me. So that meant um, that I needed to go to OCS. So I ended up going to officer candidate school for the U.S. Army. And, and when the, that time uh, after OCS, I was one of those little butterball lieutenants. Vietnam was heating up. 
even though I didn't have to go, I was actually stationed out at Dugway Proving Ground in Utah for the first year of being an, an officer in the Army. I looked around and said, I've got all this experience uh, with uh, Virginia Tech and the Cadet Corps and all the training that I've had, and I think that I probably should go to Vietnam and not have some poor schlub who's not really trained to go. And uh, so I did. I called the Pentagon. They were incredulous. <laughs> but I was, but you know, I'm a Colwood boy, West Virginia. We're real patriotic. And I, you know, so I volunteered for uh, Vietnam and uh, they assigned me to the 1st Cavalry Division at first. But when I got over there, I was, re they, uh, they didn't expect me. My orders were all messed up. And they ended up assigning me to the 4th Infantry Division up around Pleiku in the Central Highlands. So uh, that's where I spent my, uh, my year in Vietnam. One year? One year was enough <laughs> as, far, as far as I was concerned. I was over there again in 67, 68, a lot of uh, activity during that year. As a matter of fact, my first week there, I was uh, sent up to Docto where they, we were having one of the biggest battles of the war. Uh, I didn't participate directly in the battle. Uh, I was in a, a support group, but I saw it firsthand. And then uh, a couple of months later, when I was out at the Oasis, a little fire base on the Cambodian border, that's when Tet of 68 happened, the big, big uh, rolling series of battles. So um, I saw plenty of activity, and um, and after my year was over, I thought that I'd kind of pushed my luck enough. So, uh, yeah, one year was enough. I haven't made it up to the memorial. Have you been up to the memorial before? Yes. What's it, how is it up there? I've never actually seen it before. It's very somber. Um, there are usually some Vietnam veterans there and they're pretty upset. And um, they're looking at all the names, whether they know anybody on the wall or not. Uh, it still, it still is, um, it causes them some consternation and, and memories that they maybe don't want to, uh, to remember. But it, it turned out to be an excellent uh, memorial. There was some controversy about it for a while, uh, but just seeing all those names up there, I think, uh, was just brilliant of the, uh, of, of the folks that were in charge of that memorial. While I was over there, I met um, uh, soldiers from everywhere. Um, but um, they do they did tend to be from small towns and um, and perhaps rural states more, although California certainly, uh, of course, yeah. California is about eight percent farmland. so so we forget that. We just mostly think of Los Angeles and San Francisco. Right. Um, but um, they were, and the Fourth Infantry Division was almost uh, hundred percent drafty, the enlisted uh, men. And um, but they they were they were hard chargers once they got over there and got themselves um, settled down a little bit. Um, you couldn't ask for a better better bunch of guys and then the fourth ID. You left the army. You stayed on as an engineer for Army Aviation Missile Command. What sort of work were you doing there? Right. So um, so when I got out of the army, um, I joined uh, the uh, as a Department of Army civilian. Um, the Army Missile Command here at uh, Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. I worked on a variety of uh, different missile systems. Uh, I was uh, mostly assigned to armor units in Vietnam. They were interested in what I might have to, to say in the design of anti-tank anti rockets. And so for the most part, I worked on the tow 
which was actually designed in France, but we modified it heavily. And it was kind of the start of all the, all the uh, shoot and scoot type of uh, anti-tank rockets that uh, are out there today. So I worked for them for a while, um, for about seven years, and then I decided I want to do something else. So um, I went to um, the Corps of Engineers that, um, over in Germany. So I worked in Germany for three years um, with the Corps, and it was there that NASA hired me, actually. Uh, I didn't expect them. I was 38 years old. I didn't expect NASA to hire me, but uh, they liked some of the work that I had done with the Missile Command and also um, with, uh, with the Corps. And also, I was a scuba instructor, and they needed somebody in the neutral buoyancy simulator to uh, help train the astronauts. So those, those three things got me hired uh, on at NASA, and it turned out to be a great career. You know, you mentioned Von Braun. Was a job at NASA something you always had in your crosshairs? Well, it was uh, when I was a rocket boy in high school and building these uh, rather sophisticated amateur rockets that allowed us to go off to the National Science Fair and and uh, win a gold medal. And, of course, um, that's the gist of, uh, of, of my memoir, Rocket Boys, that, that then became the movie October Sky. And Von Braun, uh, you know, he was... Uh, back then considered a, a, a big hero to almost all the young people in the United States because we wanted desperately to catch up with the Russians and he, he was the fellow and his team was the one that was going to help us um, help us do that. But uh, things changed once I got off to college and I could see that the military was going to be a major part of my career, especially with all the wars that were heating up at that time. Uh, so I kind of set aside the whole idea of working for NASA. And when I came back from uh, from Vietnam, uh, NASA was actually laying engineers off because the Apollo program uh, was was winding down, even though they hadn't launched all of them. They had, they had built all the rockets by then and picked out all the crews and they had everybody on the ground that they wanted. So they were actually laying off engineers and not hiring new ones. So I again, I just set that aside and uh, I was really, really interested in scuba diving and adventure traveling and and the job that I had. And I was also starting to develop a writing career as well. So uh, what came along uh, when I was 38 uh, there in 1981, just as the shuttle started to fly, was a, was a big surprise to me, but a very pleasant one. It was like that the boy, whether I knew it or not, that boy, uh, that Colwood boy was always aspiring to get to NASA in one way or the other. He made it happen. <laughs> Yeah, your resume reads as a, you know, what haven't you done on the ground? You know, <laughs> training astronauts must bring you incredible pride when you look back at your legacy there. You know, are there any missions that you help astronauts train for that stick out in your mind as the most challenging or what makes you the most proud? Well, and very definitely uh, what was called Space Lab J. And that was the first Japanese astronauts. And really, uh, NASA had not... Uh, done very much work with international partners at, uh, at that time. And the Japanese were kind of an unknown quantity, um, but they paid for a space lab mission and uh, for one um, Japanese astronaut to fly aboard the shuttle and the space lab module. And so, but they had picked three Japanese astronauts and they wanted all three of them trained. And then NASA picked three uh, American astronauts, so we had we needed to train them all together, and uh, the best place to begin that was over in Japan. So um, I spent a total of almost two years in Japan, going back and forth two, three months at a time, 
uh, working with the Japanese, getting them ready for the training, uh, observing how they had already trained their astronauts, and then bringing, folding our astronauts in uh, when the time came. And so I, I found it absolutely fascinating. I loved working with the Japanese, and I hope that what we established was the capability of NASA to work with internationals. And um, so we really had a very successful flight. The other was probably that I'm proud of is I worked on the Hubble Space Telescope Repair. Uh, I'd actually helped train Kathy Sullivan and Bruce McCandless, the astronauts, to deploy the uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. We worked in this big tank at 75 feet across, 40 feet deep, called a neutral buoyancy simulator. They'd go inside their spacesuits, and and we had a one-to-one -one mock up of the Hubble in there. And if there was a problem with the Hubble, and it turned out that there was. Um, when they deployed it, they'd have to go outside and do everything it took to deploy it. So we trained them to do that. And then to, uh, to uh, our disappointment, once it was in orbit, they found that the Hubble uh, needed uh, repair. Uh, it was nearsighted. So um, that was, it looked like there for a while that we'd spent all these billions of dollars. I think Jay Leno, the comedian, called it um, the Hubble Space Paperweight. And NASA was very embarrassed, but they figured out how to fix it, but it meant a crew would have to go up there and do something uh, to, to fix it, and that meant training them. And that was the, uh, the crew of uh, Story Musgrave, Kathy Thornton, and Jeff Hoffman. So they came to Huntsville, and I was on the team that uh, trained them for weeks and weeks and months and months uh, in, in the tank on what it would take uh, to repair the Hubble. And that was a very successful uh, mission. And then I was spun off to work with the Russians as uh, it looked like that we were gonna uh, build the International Space Station with them. So I ended up being over in Moscow for many, many months um, working with the Russians, which was kind of interesting because I was the oldest, about the oldest person in my group. I was in my forties at that time. Well, actually, early 50s, and the rest of my group that I that was on a negotiating team were probably in their 20s, maybe early 30s at the oldest, and we were looking across the table at the same men who had launched Sputnik. Literally, <laughs> they they were still there. Uh, so um, the way that you negotiate with the Russians, I found, is they won't agree with anything in a formal setting. Never. I don't care what it is. Uh, you know, and so they'll just say, yeah, yeah, that's just the way they work. And because they want to see what they can get out of it, and they've learned just saying no over and over is eventually uh, good hearted people like Americans. We kind of give <laughs> give in after a while. But um, but I, I hung in there. And so what I learned is the only place really to negotiate with the Russians is the party after the meeting. And there's always a party. And that's when the vodka comes out. And uh, you can shy away from them and be mad at them. But um, I just started, I started talking about when I was a boy growing up in Colwood and how Sputnik had inspired me and all the kids that I knew. And they had never heard that. They weren't, they, it's like they missed that whole chunk of history uh, that they had inspired all of these uh, American youth to want to get into engineering and math and science and everything. And they liked that a lot. So they would, you know, uh, uh, take me aside and um, I'd pour most of my vodka in the potted plant, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't. And they would say, uh, uh, you know, Homer, we can't agree to this. So, you know, that kind of thing. And they would agree. And then we'd go back and uh, I, it would be their proposal. And uh, mm -hmm. like they, they thought of it. And so that's the way to work with the Russians. 
<laughs> you know, you mentioned earlier, I think you said you had bad, bad eyes. Yes, very bad eyes. I had uh, 2,400 in both eyes, which uh, uh, this was a time before any kind of laser surgery or anything. So, I was, yeah. So I was, about to, I was about to ask, is like, you know, was there any aspiration at all for you to go up to the International Space Station? Well, I would have gone once I started training the astronauts. I thought to myself, well, I could do this. I've already, I'm the guy training. Train. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but um, it, it was never my aspiration to be an astronaut. I took one look at, at, the, at their career path, and I thought, I want no part of this at all. For the most part, uh, their training or sitting behind a desk somewhere, I, do, I did not find that 98% of their career to be very interesting. That small 2% when they're in orbit, probably less than that. Uh, yeah, that would have been interesting, but otherwise, now I want to know part of that. I had a lot of other things that I wanted to do with my scuba diving and my travel and my writing and just just uh, the fun of going out to the scientists and asking them, what do you plan on doing with this experiment in orbit? Can I look at it? So I'd go out there before anybody else and then show me and I'd go, no, it's not going to work. And we need to redesign that. We want to make it as simple as possible for the crew. Uh, and um, they don't really have time for, for your really uh, sophisticated experimental setup that you've got. I said, what, what the astronauts really want, I would tell you this. Um, they'll settle for a, a, a box that has um, two buttons on it, one green and one red. That's what they really want, what start and stop. But they'll, uh, they would really like it if you just put one button up. <laughs> but, of course, most of the experiments were a little bit too complicated for that. But as I said, that's your starting point. Really, really try to make it as simple as possible. Uh, they've got a lot of things to do up there in orbit, and uh, they will do whatever you want them to do. But let's try to make it a little easy on them if we can. Fair enough. All right, moving on from NASA, I've read, like I said, you mentioned it. You mentioned it a couple of times now. You are the second scuba instructor I've had on the show, and I read you are, again, quite a scuba enthusiast. Uh, what is the best wreck you've ever dived? Well, probably the U-boat wrecks. And, and that, uh, because I started diving on these German U-boats off North Carolina, that also really helped me in my writing career, which I'll talk about in a second. So I, I was writing um, on the side. I was a freelance writer, and I, and I, I kind of specialized in writing about diving on, on wrecks. And so um, in 1973, I got a call from Sport Diver magazine, and um, they said that uh, there were some North Carolina divers that were claiming that they were diving on a German U-boat. They could not believe that uh, that, that was true. It was probably a scuttled American U-boat. Could be German, but it was probably one captured after a war, scuttled, nobody knew anything about. So um, would I go up there and uh, dive on it and photograph it? Uh, and I said, sure, it was great. So I went up there and finally found some North Carolina divers willing to take me out on it. And I went down and I'd done enough research by then. I instantly recognized it. Yes, it was a German U-boat. It was a Type 7 um, German U-boat, which was the smaller uh, uh, size. And um, it was obviously one that was armed. It had 88 millimeter shells littered all over the deck. It was a big hole in the, in the deck where the 88 millimeter gun was supposed to be. 
and there was a torpedo sticking out of one of the bow tubes and one of them out in the sand and the conning tower hatch was open. Now it, uh, it's a very deep dive, it's 110 feet, which meant I couldn't stay there very long. I looked in there, it was filled with silt and reached in and what I thought was a, maybe a bowl, you know, that's what scuba divers do, we tend to take souvenirs. And I picked it up and it was um, the top half of a human skull. And I put that back, but I knew instantly I've got a story here. And that turned out to be uh, that U-boat uh, was a U-352, which was the second U-boat sunk by American forces during World War II. And this huge battle that occurred that most people didn't know anything about, I certainly didn't, although I considered myself fairly well-read on World War II, the Battle of Torpedo Junction, where over uh, 400 American and British ships were sunk and uh, uh, seven German U-boats. It was a huge battle that took place between January and uh, August of uh, 1942. So I started all my research then, but it's a very interesting wreck. I was able to track down the crew, uh, the captain of the U-352. Uh, he and some of his crew had survived and got a firsthand account. And uh, then I tracked down the crew of the Coast Guard cutter that sank them, the Icarus, and then uh, the next U-boat I dived on was a U-85, which was the first um, German U-boat that was sunk by American forces, and it was also off um, the Outer Banks of North Carolina. All the crew died on it. That was uh, another scary, deep, uh, dark dive, but um, uh, ultimately, I uh, did so much research on the U-boats and that, that war I, uh, or that battle, I ended up writing my first book, successful book uh, called Torpedo Junction that the Naval Institute uh, Press brought out in 1989. You ever had a bad case of the Benz? Yes, I have. Um, you know, I'm like uh, every diver. I don't, I think I'm bulletproof. I'm invulnerable. <laughs> um, and that I would never get bent because I'm very careful. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm a technical person, so I really pay attention to decompression tables. And when I was diving the, the deep wrecks, um, we, that was before decompression computers were invented. And also nitrox, which is a higher oxygen content that allows you to, uh, to avoid the bends. So we're just diving on normal air. And um, I never had any problem. I did all my safety stops. I paid attention to the Navy tables very, very closely. We did have a decom meter. It was it was made in Italy. We used to call it uh, the bendomatic. Uh, you know, they they said, "What's the first thing that happens when you go in a decompression chamber? They take your bendomatic off your arm." Uh, so <laughs> so it wasn't very accurate, but it was an indi indicator. But what happened to me in terms of decompression was because of the Hubble Space Telescope. I spent way, way, way too many hours underwater in a neutral buoyancy simulator at 40 feet. And although I didn't exceed the Navy tables, the decompression tables, I certainly, uh, without realizing it, was um, having a lot of nitrogen, which is what gives you the bends, being dissolved in my blood that perhaps didn't have time to come out. I, I didn't even think about that. And it was just beyond what the Navy tables are really designed to take care of. So I went down to Honduras um, as a, just as a break. I had owned some property down there, a little island in Guanaja, and made one deep dive well within the decompression limits and came up and was uh, hit um, in, the, uh, in my spinal cord um, with a type two uh, decompression hit. <clears throat> and I was in trouble. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I could walk, but I couldn't feel anything from the waist down. And so um, through, um, th 
through luck. Uh, the best luck was that there was a fish plant nearby on that island that had welding oxygen. And I knew that's what I needed with oxygen. So uh, I was carried over there by the fellow I was staying with. And um, fortunately, they had a machinist and we worked out how to get welding oxygen into a scuba tank. And I was able to um, alleviate most of the symptoms of this, um, of this hit. Uh, until we could get an airplane down, a, a one atmosphere uh, airplane that allowed me to fly back up here to Huntsville. And I spent many, many hours in the decompression uh, chamber. But I seemed to come out pretty well. Sometimes when I get tired, my feet get a little numb. And I think that's the result of that. Uh, but I, I was very fortunate to survive that incident. I wrote about that in the latest book called Don't Blow Yourself Up which everybody should buy just for the title, right? Just a reminder. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Homer Hickam. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know, that's right. Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And together we are the Spy Hearts Podcast. Every Tuesday, we decode the best and the worst of spy cinema to decipher if they make the knock list. That's right. The knock list is the need-to-see official classics of the spy genre. The best of the best, so to speak. Nobody does it better. From Born to Bond and Powers to Palmer, you can bet we will cover it. So subscribe now and revel in the audio equivalent of a smooth martini. Just search for Spy Hards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on all major podcast apps. And let's just hope you find us before we find you. Hello, Duval Nation. Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duvall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. Teachers, 
do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Work Hours Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 185 of the Derek DeBall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with former NASA engineer and best-selling author, Homer Hickam. Can you tell the story of the events of the 84 Paddlebell Rescue? Yes, that was the Titanic. It was called, uh, you know... A Appropriately so, sadly, it was owned by the SCI company, Spacecraft Inc. company, and they had a little paddle boat that they had on the Tennessee River just right here in Huntsville that was meant as a recreational boat for its employees. And I happened to be down there um, uh, water skiing when a microburst came along and struck the Titanic and turned it over. I just happened to be there. So I rushed over there and um, and there was uh, a, a crew person or two on top of it, the bottom, they were on the bottom of the boat, but it, that was the only thing that was sticking out of the water. And uh, and they were hysterical that um, that the uh, passengers were, were still on board. So 
uh, I borrowed a, a scuba mask from from somebody and um, dive down, uh, free dive down and brought up one person and that person had already passed. And then along came a boat that had scuba equipment in it. And uh, I begged for that. They didn't want to go down <laughs> the people that had the scuba equipment. But I, you know, again, I was scuba instructor and I had done rescue diving and even taught rescue diving. So I borrowed the scuba equipment and went down and ended up bringing 12 of the passengers out. Unfortunately, they were all they'd all passed away with within minutes if i'd been there just a few minutes early i'd probably been able to to save them it was a very very sad day hmm. you are quite you've mentioned it a couple of times now but you are quite an accomplished writer from torpedo junction rocket boys to back to the moon there are books for every almost every generational reader you know what is your method to writing and other than the books that come from your life story you know where do you draw your inspiration from well, I usually just write the books that I want to read. If no other writer has has written them, and I'm going to sit down and write them. And um, I do take, I do, of course, draw from my uh, personal experiences. One of the things that I've been doing now for over 20 years is every summer, uh, as a, for instance, I go out in Montana and I hunt dinosaur bones, fossils. And in the process, I've gotten to know those unique people that live out there in the Badlands of uh, Montana. And uh, so one of the books that I, I wrote and had a lot of fun writing it was one called The Dinosaur Hunter. And it's as much about the ranchers. It's kind of a mystery book, which I, uh, again, I enjoy mysteries. And I thought, well, I, I need to write a mystery book and uh, I'll set it in Montana. I know a lot about it. And uh, I'll also make... Uh, uh the folks in it uh, a couple of them anyway uh fossil hunters and so that was fun fun to do and then sometimes my agent will come in and say homer homer we need you to write a young adult series set in space will you be are you willing to to do that and he'll say and i'll say mm, i don't know if i really want to do that frank and he'll say i have a contract and that's what it, this is what it's worth and i go you know what now that you mention that that is the book the next series of books i wanted to write so sometimes it's a commercial thing but always before i do it um it's something that i i want to be interested in otherwise you're gonna you're gonna understand that that and i always do i can almost tell when a writer didn't really care what they were <laughs> writing about no matter how good they are and so um but I'm an eclectic writer, uh, Derek, I, uh, and I, that, that's a publisher's nightmare. After Rocket Boys was such a big success, they really just wanted me to write Rocket Boys over and over again, a, a series of memoirs, just that's what they wanted. And I did that for a couple of books and they were very successful, The Coldwood Way and Sky of Stone. In between that, I threw in um, Back to the Moon, which was a, 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 a techno thriller that I'd actually already written before Rocket Boys. One of those things that sometimes writers keep in their lower desk drawer and haul it out. And I completely revised it, but nonetheless. But after that, I wanted to get away from the memoirs. And I, and I remembered Torpedo Junction, what I had written there and all the research that we had done and all of the stories that I had heard. So I wanted to write fiction um, based upon uh, all the information that I had from Torpedo Junction. And that became the Josh Thurlow series, um, The Keeper's Son, which was about a Coast Guard uh, captain, very colorful one, uh, in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And then I took him off to the South Pacific for the last two of the series. So yeah, um, but publishers don't really like that. They don't like you bouncing around. So I've ended up with a number of publishers, major publishers though, um, and I've been very, very happy with them. But um, 
um, I'm just uh, these days watching how the publishing industry is uh, changing. I'm kind of glad that um, when I started out, uh, it was still the old school. It was almost the same publishers that did Hemingway and Steinbeck and and all of those guys. And so you kind of recognize what the industry was, but it's it's changed so much um, with ebooks and uh, the, the collapse of the brick and mortar bookstores. Um, and so uh, you got to be nimble as a writer and uh, and uh, and change with the times. Yeah. Your latest book is Don't Blow Yourself Up, The Further True Adventures and Travails of Rocket Boy of of the Rocket Boy of October Sky. Great title. <laughs> it took me a second. I had to get that out. Thank you. What what inspired you to write the sequel to the original memoir? Yeah, well, I'd already, I'd always been thinking that I had more stories to tell. Um, but how to how exactly to tell them? Um, for instance, in Virginia Tech and and that cadet corps there, I'm I'm one of the guys that ended uh, ended up building their great big game cannon that they have that uh, called the Skipper, and there's a, was a story behind that. And then there was the story, you know, about being in the fourth ID and in, in Vietnam, and then uh, becoming a scuba instructor and traveling all over doing that, and then you know, um, and then NASA, and then writing Rocket Boys, and then having the movie October Sky made. So I, I had a lot of of stuff, but how to actually best to write it and take the time was that really my priority? The pandemic kind of led me to do that. Um, so I just thought, you know, now's the time to do it for all I know, this virus is going to knock me off any day. So I better get this down. And once I started, I really, really enjoyed, uh, writing it. And my agent was ecstatic that I was, I was back writing in the memoir field. He really, really liked that. So it didn't take too long for us to get a publisher and I'm, I'm pretty happy the way the books turned out. How important has the film October Sky been in your life and, you know, people learning more about you? Well, it's huge. I mean, um, I mean, Rocket Boys has sold millions of copies, but there's nothing like a movie. Uh, that, that's a continue, continuous advertisement, if you will, for people to go read the source, and that's Rocket Boys. Uh, but even if there wasn't, um, movies reach million, hundreds of millions of people, and October Sky um, is still shown uh, in net on networks and cable and streaming and everywhere. It's around the world. I get letters, um, mostly emails, uh, every day uh, from um, young people and old who, for the first time, you got to realize this movie is like 25 years old. So there's a lot of uh, young people out there who've never seen it. Uh, one thing is every substitute teacher in the world, I think, shows October Sky because I I hear from these <laughs> these kids that say, I'm sick of your movie. I've seen it about five times because every time we get a substitute teacher, they want to show this movie. Um, but uh, that's a great compliment, though, really. And so it has a, it had a profound impact on me. I guess it's made me sort of a semi, very, very mid-level, low-level, hopefully celebrity, if you will. And... Um, I, I, the only the only downside to it is I can see the disappointment in the young women's eyes when they realize that I'm not really Jake Gyllenhaal, so uh, who played me in the movie. So other than that, it's yeah. it's been a very positive experience. Do you know it's funny um, that movie? You, you say, like I said, social teachers show it in the, in classes. When I was in the Navy on on the aircraft carrier, it was shown at least once a week on the <laughs> on the. Um, inboard movie channels that we had at least once a week. October Sky was going to be shown on the uh, on the on the movie circuit without fail. So 
Yeah, well, those kind of movies you can start you you uh, start memorizing the dialogue and you <laughs> you start saying saying them with the characters. Yeah, um, yeah, I know what you say. I know what, yeah. I, I I know films like that. Now, when I was in the army, of course, it was uh, you didn't have the video. It was all just uh, old film, yeah. um, actually with a uh, film projector. But we even had those in uh, Vietnam, and I can remember going down and getting like one film. I'm trying to remember might have been the longest day it was like a six reel film film and i went down wherever i don't remember but somewhere you went to pick up these reels and but they didn't tell you what order that they were supposed to be so you just guessed <laughs> and you get on so they will watch you know like the fourth reel and then the first reel. <laughs> but the guys didn't care you know it's just they were doing something yeah. besides thinking about where they were <laughs> that's amazing Pierre de Goubertin said the most important thing in life is not the it's not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your younger self. What do you say to him? Yeah, well, I, uh, you know, I wouldn't tell him to change too much. Uh, I've got a very optimistic uh, view of life. So I don't know. Um, really, I, uh, what I do, you know, for I might not give the young Homer much advice. I think he's he grew up with the. Uh, with some really uh, strong and tough people who gave him all the values he needed. Not that I didn't mess up from time to time, messed up a lot, but I think that's just part of the learning. So I'm not going to, I would not tell the young Homer how to avoid some of the things that, that he got himself into because they helped him in, in the long run. Uh, but I do, when I talk to young people uh, and, and I'm on the board at space camp here in Huntsville, and uh, I go out, I don't usually talk to the young campers. They've got their counselors. They, they've got plenty of folks talking to them. But during the summer, we have teachers that come to space camp. And I do go out every week and talk to them uh, when they're here. And uh, that question comes up, what, what do you tell young people these days? And, and I've been giving more or less the same advice for the last 20 years or so. It, it's evolved a little bit based upon the realities of the situation. But essentially, if you want to have a good life and uh, a working life, now, of course, the family is everything. If, if you have a good family and uh, they're supportive of you and good friends, that's everything, really. But in terms of a working life where you're making a living and able to support your family and be happy in what you do most of the day, You've got to figure out what it is that you really, really want to do. What's your passion? What is it you want to wake up every morning and say, oh, boy, I get to go do that, whatever it is. To this day, I do. I wake up and I say, oh, boy, I get to talk to Derek today, for instance. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so, or I get to write. And, and when I worked for NASA, I definitely woke up every day and I thought to myself, oh, boy, I get to go work for NASA today. How cool is that? You know. And so um, I think that's the problem with every young person is trying to figure out what their real passion in life is and admitting it to themselves. This is what I really want to do. You know, I want to wake up every day and do this. It may not require going off to college. Um, may, you may want to go to a trade school or it may not, you know, but it's something, it's not the money. Uh, forget the money. The money will come if you're doing something you, you, you love. So search for that passion and then figure out how to make it happen. Get a plan, that's what I call the three P's of success, passion, planning, and perseverance. You gotta get a plan to reach that passion and your work passion. And sometimes that requires getting a mentor and don't be afraid. Uh, see somebody who's really successful in whatever field you wanna be and don't be afraid. I think uh, most young people are afraid to approach us uh, older folks 
because uh, they think we're going to think less of them because of it. But actually, we're very complimented when they do. And uh, you say, I want to do what you're doing. How do I do that? You know, I think that's just the most, that's the greatest compliment any, and any adult that pushes aside some young person who, who, who comes to them like that is not worth living, in my opinion. <laughs> so, so passion, planning, and then perseverance, of course. Not everything's going to work out like you hope. You might not reach um, your goal. But along the way, if you're persevering, you'll find something that you really love. So, um, so that's my advice. Nice. So outside of the book, what is next for you? Well, right now, um, I wrote a screenplay. And uh, based upon the Coldwood Way, which was the second Rocket Boys uh, memoir, and it's been received very, very well um, out in Hollywood. Um, they, you know, uh, people always underestimate me. It's like, what do you know about writing a screenplay, Homer? Um, well, I don't know. I've watched about a million hours of movies and TV. <laughs> <laughs> my life. And I kind of soaked it in on how that happened. So I sat down and wrote this screenplay and they love it out there. So uh, we're calling it December Sky. I don't know why we want to have that title, uh, but it will be the Rocket Boys. And it's essentially a Christmas story. Of course, the strike out there right now is not helpful to us, but we've already got a couple of big stars that are very interested in it. So we shall see, but that's fun. I've got... Um, uh, an LLC, a limited liability company formed. I've got a couple of producers that I really, really respect on board. And we hope to do all the filming up in West Virginia. Uh, we've already scouted all the locations. And so this is a great deal of fun to me to be working on. But I do have in the back of my mind of writing um, another another book and perhaps a series of essays uh, this time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've always got uh, got something going on. So as we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question, you know, like, what do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax? Yeah, so um, I, I like to exercise. I mean, I go out every day. I used to run. I loved to run. I'd get the best ideas when I when I ran. Most of them weren't really good, but I thought they were while I ran. While I ran. <laughs> uh, but you know, I'd go back and that's the dumbest, that's the dumbest thing you ever thought of. Homer. But anyway, it was fun uh, while I was running. And uh but uh, my knees at 80 are not all that wonderful. So I go out and walk, but I walk very, very briskly <laughs> when I do. We have a home also down in the Virgin Islands that we get, we get to um, three or four times a year. I still scuba dive. I still snor snorkel and I look forward to that. And then I, I plan my dinosaur hunting trip um, throughout the year before we go out there. I, I plan on going back uh, again in September, wait till it cools down a little bit. Um, but, uh, that is just so much fun. So yeah, life is good. How many fossils have you found? Actually, my little team of three have credit for six T-Rexes so far out of the 40 ever found. So we're very good. And I don't know how many triceratops and, um, duckbills. So yeah, we're, we're very good, but we don't dig them up. It's like to say, that's why God made grad students. You know, I don't really have the patience to dig one of those things up. I mean, I just want to get a stick of dynamite and blow it out of the earth, and then we'll glue it back together. So they know not to let me anywhere in the, <laughs> the actual dig. <laughs> but but, uh, but we find them, which is a lot of fun. And you never know. You can find something that looks really, really cool, and that may be the only thing you see because you're looking at what's coming out on the surface. Right. Uh, it's not till one of the professionals goes out and, and um and surveys it and looks at it and goes, you know, this is worth me bringing a team out here and digging this up. And then, 
then that ta it takes usually a few years before um, we can actually get any uh, paleontologists and diggers out there to work on it. And then they may never work on it. You, you don't know. The, but I worked at the University of Washington, uh, Dr. Greg Wilson, and also Montana State University. So anything we find uh, goes directly to them. I don't keep anything. That's amazing. So what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Well, they can go to homerhickam.com. I have to know how to spell Hickam. It's H-I-C-K-A-M. Don't, uh, don't pay any attention to spell check. They'll try to change that. Uh, homerhickam.com. And uh, I, I am out on Twitter and I am out on Facebook um, under my name. So just uh, look for me out there. And, uh, and uh, we don't tend to put anything controversial on either one of those. I am just absolutely in the middle on everything. Uh, but we do try to make what we put out there uh, interesting. Like I'll put up pictures of our dinosaur hunting and any of our new books coming out or the musical we're working on or whatever, you know. So I just try to make it fun. Awesome. All right, Homer, I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? Well, we are on a beautiful planet. We are a very, very um, lucky uh, people, and um, we should enjoy life. Don't let life get you down. Um, wake up every day uh, feeling, uh, in the first place, just you should be optimistic because the odds of you even existing is trillions to one, and the fact that you are means that you are favored by our creator, and... Um, and just enjoy life. All right. The book is Don't Blow Yourself Up, The Further True Adventures and Travails of the Rocket Boy of October Sky, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your books online. Homer, you have filled every qualification for coming on this show, and I am beyond honored that you have decided to grace my studio with your presence. Thank you ever so much for coming on the show, sir. Well, thank you, Derek. A great interview. I really enjoyed it. And just like that, Devon Nation, we come to the end of episode 185. I want to thank Homer for taking the time out of his very busy schedule to come on the show. What a great interview, and I am so glad we can make that happen. Homer, you are welcome back on my show anytime. Okay, tune in again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show is a great little store on there, and with everything without a logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs, plus... We have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you will take it to our store on TeePublic. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, do yourself a favor this week. Turn your exposure to the news off by half. With what is going on in the world, it can't be good for our mental health to be exposed to the news so much. So give the news this week a good scaling back. See how you feel by the weekend. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth.
This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.